chapter 27. Children of Israel are at this point in time camped uh, on the eastern side of the Jordan River immediately opposite the city of Jericho which will be the first city that uh, they will conquer in the conquest of the promised land and uh, here through the remainder of the book of Numbers and then for the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy God is just kind of taking care of some details before they uh, head into that conquest and in chapter 26 Last time we were together, one of the things that he took care of was the renumbering of the second generation of all of the males who were 20 years old and above. Uh, the first generation had fully died off by this point, and so given the fact that they were going to enter into a military conquest, what was the number <clears throat> Excuse me, of their, their military? And so that numbering occurred, and now uh, we head into chapter 27. And then came the daughters of uh, Zeholahad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and these were the names of his daughters. Uh, boy, how'd you like to introduce your daughter in those days? <laughs> wow! Okay, the families, uh, well, anyway. Uh, here's their names Mela, Noah, Hogla, uh, Milka, and Tirzah. So here are, are the, the daughters, all of them sisters. And they stood before Moses, before Eliezer, the priest, and before the leaders of all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting. So they have a request that they're going to pose to the leadership of the nation of Israel and the place the, uh, the, to meet with them that would speak of the fact that they want God to be sought on this particular issue would be at the very gator area of, of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting which represented the presence of God. So here's their request, verse 3. Our father died in the wilderness. He was one of the, the uh, first generation out of Israel. He died as a part of that 40-year wandering in the wilderness. But he, they were very careful for his reputation. Uh, he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in the company of Korah. So they said, he died like all of the rest of them did in the first generation except for uh, Joshua and Caleb and Moses at this point. And uh, so he died like they did, but he didn't take place in the kind of extraordinary wickedness of the rebellion of Korah. But he died in his own sin and he had no sons. Now they're going to go in and they're going to co uh, conquer the land and then they are going to allocate the land among the twelve tribes of Israel. And they're going to allocate the land within those 12 tribes according to the families that make up those tribes. And they would divide that land on the basis of the sons, on the basis of the men. So here they've got a problem. They're going into the promised land. Uh, just because they're women in that culture doesn't mean they're not uh, any less interested in God, not any less spiritual uh, than, than men. And they want to possess all of the promises of God for themselves. But without a son, when they go into that land, as the land would be divided among the tribe of Manasseh, because there was no brother, they would be skipped over under the current economy. 
And, and so they look, looked at this and, and they realized that what it would mean under that Jewish economy is basically their name, their father's name would be lost in the history of Israel. There would be no land that they would be able to attach themselves to. So this is a really big, uh, a big deal that's going on uh, here. So there are no, uh, we have, uh, um, uh, no sons, why should the name of our father be, verse 4, be removed from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. And so Moses brought the case before the Lord. That's a good thing to do. Now here's what we've got. It's a, it's a great principle as it relates to our lives. Sometimes we go to the Word of God, and the Word of God is very, very specific and very, very clear on our issue. God, should I do this or should I not do this? We go to the Bible and it says, always do this and never do that. That's very simple, isn't it? When we hit that, that kind of clarity related to, to a specific circumstance in the Bible. But sometimes there's things where God gives a general command concerning something, but then again, as we saw this morning, He can, he can do a couple of different things uh, in... in uh, his will in, in that particular area in our lives. So they, they, you look at that kind of thing and you say, Lord, I get the big picture here, but I don't understand in this little section of it, what does your will look like here? So I, I need more clarity from you than your word is providing for me here. Those are the things that we take to the Lord specifically in prayer. The other things are settled for us very easily. But here we go, Lord, it's not clear. Do we go left? Do we go right here on this? And uh, your word isn't specific on it. And when his word isn't specific on it, it means that he intends to be uh, approached by us in prayer because in the specifics of our situation, he will tell us what is best there. He gives, God gives himself the wiggle room that he needs in his word. Not wiggle room for us, but wiggle room for Him, so that when we seek Him, He can say, all right, for you, here's what I want you to do here. So they bring the specific uh, that isn't that clear to them to Moses. Moses then brings it to the Lord in prayer, as we should do. And the Lord then spoke to Moses, and He said, the daughters of Zehilophad speak what is right. Well, praise the Lord. How good would that feel to hear from them? And the Bible says, uh, you have not because you ask not. So if they had never asked, they would never know. So they come, they say, these are women of faith. And they asked, and God said, they speak what is right. So here's what we're going to do. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers. When you go into that land, I want them to receive the same allotment of land, that family, as if there were a son or sons in that family. That's what they asked for. God said they can have it. But then notice he doesn't stop there. There's an and there. He's going to give them more than they asked for. God does a lot of that. And cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. So they're going to re receive a, a inheritance within that specific land, but then he's, he's going to speak of a way for that land to stay within the family even when there uh, uh, are no males to pass it on to and, uh, and only daughters, uh, only use in a qualified uh, term. Don't send me any letters. And you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, if a man dies and he has no son, 
the very specific, the very situation that they're describing. Then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. Son doesn't matter. The daughter, that's the next closest, closest blood relative. It goes to the daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. So that's the next closest blood relative. God's going to try and keep the land in the family. That's, uh, that was important to him. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his uh, uh, father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family. And he shall possess it, and it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord uh, commanded Moses. And so this, this gets established by the Lord, and something that we wouldn't have that kind of clarity on unless they had asked the question. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this Mount uh, Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you've seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, was gathered. So here they're getting again ready to go in and take the promised land. God has already spoken to Moses over the fact that he is not going to lead them into the promised land because of his sin, as we're going to see here in, in the next verse, his sin of striking the rock a second time instead of speaking to it and ruining the, misrepresenting the Lord and, and ruining the imagery and, and typology of Jesus in that, that Old Testament event. So when God tells Moses, uh, listen, what I want you to do here now, you're not going to take them into the land. I want you to come up on the top of the mountain and I want you to look out on the land that these people, this generation that you're talking with right now um, and leading, this is the land they're going to go into. And when God lets Moses go up on that mountain and to see all the length and the breadth of the land, he's not like taunting Moses or torturing him in any way and saying, look at what they get to possess and you don't get to because of your sin. God never operates that way. But what he's doing is, he, it's really grace on his part. He's saying to Moses, I can't overlook what happened there and the judgment and the consequences of it, but I want you to experience as much as you can of this short of actually going in, which is prohibited uh, to you. Now we know just a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning we were looking and we know that Moses did end up in the promised land, didn't he? Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration with none other than Jesus and Elijah, Jesus himself, and then also Elijah. So he ended up in, in the promised land. But this was the most that God could do for him uh, here, given his failure. And God, I, I find that God is he's just, he's always just looking for a way to bless us. And to, to take and look and say, you know, that happened over there and all, but I'm, I'm going to find a way here to just, I can't ignore that, but I'm going to take this as, as, as far as I can to bless you in, in spite of what happened there. And uh, God is always looking for a way to bless his children as much as he can with the circumstances that are handed to him. And he gives the reason why he can't 
go into the land. Verse 14, for in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Before we leave this, there's a phrase I love in verse 13. Uh, and when you've seen it, he said, you shall be gathered to your people. He's talking about his death. It's a wonderful way to describe death, isn't it? When the child of God dies, we're gathered. And we're not just gathered, we are gathered to our people, to God's people, to his family. Saints of the Old Testament, saints of the New Testament. There's no reincarnation, there's no getting absorbed by some kind of a, a cosmic you know, energy force out there, anything like that. There's no ceasing to exist. When the child of God dies, we are gathered by God himself, gathered to his people. For the child of God, for the Christian, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. He just slips us out of this body and he gathers us to his people up, up in heaven. It's a beautiful beautiful description of death. And then Moses, verse 15, spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of all the spirits of all flesh. So when he describes God as the God of, of the spirits of all flesh, he's saying, God, you know the heart of every man and every woman. You know everything about what makes them tick. You, you know their motives. You know them inside and out. And so, Lord, that's the kind of insight and understanding that you have of, of people. And so, Lord, my request is, is that you would choose to set a man over the congregation. Now, Moses has just heard about the fact that he is going to die. He's going to die soon. He's almost 120 years old, and he's going to be gathered to his people not going to lead him into the promised land. And Moses takes, and the first thing that his mind goes to isn't, well, you know, can we re-talk that over, you know, you know, one more time to, you know, whine about it or complain or try to change God's mind. I, well, I hate to Im impose myself on Moses and the teaching of the Bible, but, um, so, but there's none of that. Moses, when he hears, I'm not going to lead them in, the first thought he goes is, Lord, these people aren't going to... They're tough enough when they have a shepherd. It's going to be a mess if you don't raise up another leader to lead these people. And his first concern goes to the people. It is a, um, a sign of just a tremendous maturity in Moses as a leader and as a child of God. You think about all the aggravation those people put him through. He wouldn't be uh, un uh, unfair and crying out to God and saying, God, you know, take me out and don't give them a leader. They don't deserve a leader. They, I, I'm the meekest man in the whole world and, and they drove me to anger and almost drove me crazy in the course of, of the ministry. Don't give them a leader. They don't deserve it and let what becomes of them. He could have laid a case for the fact that I'd be leading them into the promised land if they hadn't pushed me so hard there at, at the, at, at, in the smiting of the rock. And these people had pushed Moses I don't need to tell you, you've been reading it with me. They pushed him, haven't they? I mean, they provoke us 
a good saint, and they did. And Moses doesn't do any of that. He looks and he looks beyond all the hurts that he's experienced, all the kind of damage that's even been done to him as in his place in, among the people of God, and he lays all of that aside, and to him the most important thing is not how he's been treated or how fairly it's been or any of those things. His greatest concern is, Lord, your work must continue through your people. And I think that nobody, in terms of longevity in Christian service, I don't care what we do for the Lord. If, if we are not quick forgetters and quick forgivers, if I'm the kind of person that holds a grudge endlessly, you won't make it. You will not make it. You will not be faithful to God's call on your life all the way to the end because bitterness will drive you out sooner or later. Because there's just going to be mistreatment, there's going to be hurt, there's going to be unfairness in it. And here he is, he lays all of it aside. Lord, it's not about me, it's not about my feelings, it is about your plan advancing in the human condition through your people. And what is best for that is that you choose the leader that's going to follow me. Now I'm so glad I don't read here in the passage that Moses suggested to the Lord, listen, I'm going to be going, they're going to need another leader, could you put the 12 guys that will form the committee, uh, that will kind of weigh all of this out and will you know, uh, we'll nominate the next leader of the children of Israel. He looks and says, Lord, you're the only one. You're the only one that can look beyond the outward appearances, the outward appearance of spirituality, the outward appearance of being able to be a smooth talker and a smooth looker and a smooth way of presenting themselves and all that. You're the one that knows what's in a man's spirit. So you pick who's supposed to be the, follower, the leader that's to follow me, who may go out before them, they need leading, and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like a sheep which has no shepherd. And so uh, sheep need sh uh, a shepherd. And a, it's a bad combination to be a sheep without a shepherd. So he says that's what they'll disintegrate into apart from a leader. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua. Be still my heart. I mean, Joshua, he must have been so excited to hear Joshua was God's choice. Joshua has been alongside Moses now for decades. He's been Moses' right-hand man. When Moses goes into the tabernacle, there is Joshua. When Moses comes out of the tabernacle, there is Joshua. Whenever jo Moses needs anything, there is Joshua. So he is a man who understands about Moses that what is important about Moses as a leader is who and what he is spiritually. What he is between him and God, not his, you know, any kind of military genius or his great abilities of administration or his abilities to kind of keep two to three million people in some semblance of order as they're going through the wilderness. All those things are wonderful in their own place, but he recognizes and would recognize because of his intimacy with Moses that what is most important in a leader is the relationship with God. Everything else will take care of itself. God can, God can shore up all of the weaknesses. He cannot shore up that glaring weakness if that doesn't exist. 
And so Joshua here is one who knew about the importance of godliness in a leader. And then he was one who was also by this time very, very accomplished in, in, uh, in warfare. And he was also the only one of the two spies with Caleb who came back at Kadesh Barnea and gave a good report to the people. He's a man of faith. And so he's, he is a unique combination of things. And so this is God's uh, choice. And Moses had to be, I think, excited to hear Joshua's name. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you. And here is the supreme qualification for him as a leader, a man in whom is the Spirit. That's, that's the decider. That's the decider. In, in any leader that's leading in any capacity, doesn't matter, in, in, in the body of Christ or among God's people, there has to be the Spirit that is in that person, the filling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament we would talk about. Again, as we talk about the fact that a person, no one person has all the gifts of the Holy Spirit or all abilities that are needed in leadership. That's why God brings a, fa- a church family together, a ministry team together. That's why he, he does that. So he can shore up all these other kind of omissions in a person's life. But there's one thing that other people cannot make up for in a leader, and that is a lack of the Holy Spirit in their life and the witness of the Holy Spirit uh, through their life as they endeavor to, to quietly and humbly serve the Lord. And so he is a man in whom is the Spirit. That's the great qualification that, that God speaks of when he speaks of Joshua and Moses, you're to lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. So he's to take Joshua, bring the high priest out, Moses, the whole congregation, very large group of people. He's to lay his hands on him, which they would have recognized that a transfer of a power and authority is moving from Moses to Joshua. This needed to be done publicly. God thinks of everything needed to be done publicly because what if Moses died and there was no clarity about who, this, who is the next leader among God's people? Among those people, you wouldn't want to see it. Among the body of Christ, to fight over who's to be the second person if God hasn't made himself clear or the next leader, forget about it. That's a war you don't want to be a part of. So God is very, very wise. Before Moses dies, he makes clear who his choice is. And then well before when Moses is gathered to his people, he is going to now start a transfer of power to Joshua so the people will now begin to develop a relationship with him as the leader of the children of Israel. Very, very wise. So it was to be done in the sight of everyone because God was communicating to the whole congregation through this. And you shall give some of your authority to him and all the congregation of the children, that all of the congregation of Israel may be obedient, that is, begin to be obedient to his leadership. And he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment uh, of the Urim. And at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. Now there is one distinction between Joshua as, uh, as the leader of the children of Israel and Moses. Moses met with God face to face. 
So he didn't have uh, the kind of uh, dependence upon the high priest for direction uh, on what the will of God was that Moses was now going to have. He just went face to face to God. He's the one that received the news. He would then deliver it to the high priest or whoever was appropriate. But now God is going to make a change with Joshua. And, and so you have kind of a deconcentration of authority here within the leadership. And now the hearing of God's voice on what to do, Joshua would come to Eliezer. Eliezer would consult the Urim and the Thummim, which was the Old Testament means by which God would reveal his will, and then Joshua would obey that revelation that came uh, to, to the high priest. And so uh, Joshua did, as the, uh, Moses did, as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, set him before Eliezer the priest, <clears throat> and, excuse me, and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as. That's, so we've got some just as obedience going on here just as the Lord commanded by the hand of, of Moses. And so the begin of, of the shift of power and authority. Now the Lord spoke uh, to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food from my offerings, made by fire as a sweet aroma to me, you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And so what the Lord is now going to do in chapters 28 and 29 is he's going to review uh, to the children of Israel through Moses uh, all of the offerings that are to be offered to him. Now, on, on this eve of the conquest of, of, uh, of, of Canaan, it was necessary for Moses now. The first generation has died away. And Moses received the law of Moses uh, from God concerning all of these offerings. He communicated them to the first generation. They are gone. They are dead. So now before they enter into the promised land with this new generation, Moses is going to repeat now the, these offerings and, uh, and, and the significance of these offerings to the second generation before they go in, into the promised land. It isn't, we could look at chapter 28 and 29 and say, yeah, we already looked at all that in other chapters and there's no big difference here between them and so why not skip over them? Um, but there is a significant difference between the, these offerings that we're going to read about in these two chapters uh, here at this point in time and when he addressed them uh, previously in the law. Earlier in the law, when he spoke about the burnt offering and he spoke uh, uh, about the Sabbath offering, he spoke about uh, the Passover and these kind of things, he was talking to the, uh, to the people about their own individual offerings that they would offer to the Lord. So let's talk about burnt offerings and sin offerings. So he was teaching them, listen, when you want to offer a burnt offering to the Lord or a sin offering to the Lord, this is what you need to do. In these two chapters... These are offerings that are going to be made not on behalf of the individual, but on behalf of the nation. And as the people would offer, the, as they would offer this as a nation to God, they were communicating something as a people, as a nation, to God. And so that's the difference between, uh, between uh, the two to two things. Now, this would have been chapters 28 and 29. We can look through and say, yeah, okay. Got, mm, 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 mm. But this would have been a tremendous encouragement uh, to them to hear this revelation from, from God uh, through Moses. 
because God says, now, when they get into the land, here's what I want them to offer to me. Well, they haven't conquered the land yet. Don't you love it when God talks about something hard that he's calling you to do and he talks about it in the past tense? As if it's already been done and you haven't even started. So I mean, what, would that do, what would that do to your faith? I mean, we're going to conquer the promised land. He's talking about the offerings we're going to offer when we're there. And so it would have been a tremendous encouragement to them. I think we ought to read every passage uh, in the Bible that has to do with heaven in the same way. I love the fact that the Bible talks about me and every single Christian in this room and in the world. When he talks about our salvation and he talks about us being in heaven, he talks about it in the past tense. He says, the Bible says, uh, I, I, am, uh, ha- I am being saved, the Bible, but the Bible also declares that I have been saved. The Bible al- says, God already sees me seated in the heavenlies. He already sees me there. It can't be any surer than that. So I, I think it's, it's very, very uh, exciting. Now, I think one final thing. We will get into the chapter, by the way. Uh, but one final thing, and this is, uh, I think, very significant that in communicating about these offerings to this next generation, he is communicating to them, ladies and gentlemen, your greatness as a nation and as my people in this world is not built supremely on your military on your individual personal strengths, on the strength of personality, on the strength of your numbers, or any of those things. Your strength as a nation will be your intimacy with God. The degree to which your life is consecrated to God, set aside to God and His purpose, to the degree that that marks you as a nation, that will be the degree to which you are strong. Now, earlier in, in chapter 26 there, he's had him count all of the men that are over the age of 20, and, and this is the number of the military. God's taken a step back and saying, don't you think that you are powerful supremely on the basis of your mil- military? Your power is, it comes from me, and your ability to access that power is based upon your intimacy with me and the degree to which your life is consecrated to me. And that's very, very significant. And that's true not only of the children of Israel in, in these days, but it's, it's true of any nation. The strength of any nation is found in its relationship with God, whether it exists for uh, purposes that are noble and good and God-given. I, I, I get concerned about our nation that we live in. I'm concerned that increasingly people look at our nation and they say, well, their strength is in their military. Their strength is... And how much of the world views that related to us? Say, well, their strength is in their military. Well, you can only feel a strong military if you've got a good economy. So the strength is in the economy. And increasingly around the world, we are known as the place, that's the place to go where you've got the freedom to make a lot of money. And the fact that this, that this nation, at one time, it's never been a perfect nation. No nation's ever been a perfect nation. God will make things perfect uh, when Jesus returns. 
But there was a time where this nation supplied its population with a sense of this nation is about something good in the world. It's about something godly and righteous and right in the world. And that's slipping away so fast on us. It's scary. I was talking with two pastors who are, uh, they minister in areas where there are military bases and large military bases in the state of California. And uh, talking with them and each one of them said, you cannot believe how fast these guys are getting out. They got years and years in. He's talking about believers. He says they are, they are taking losses in terms of what they could a little bit longer secure this, in terms of pensions and this stuff. They just want out. And I think when we look and we see this nation changing morally, changing spiritually, changing what we stand for in the world, rather than righteousness, all of these carnal things, where are you going to find men and women who are going to fight for that? Who's going to join the military to say, I'm going to join the military and I'm going to put my life on the line all around the world so everyone in the United States can fornicate? So homosexuals can marry. So people can be free to make a fortune and not even think about us out on the field. So they can get drunk and loaded every single night of the week because the clubs are open all night long. Where are you going to find men and women that are going to fight for that when that's what we're known for? People, the, the best that will fight for a nation... They, the best of them will fight for noble causes. You have to supply them with that. And so the consequences are far-reaching in all directions when a nation moves away from God and is not supremely, or at least in a dominant way, has a concern for how they stand in the eyes of God. I don't need to tell you how quickly we're moving from it. Well, let's get into chapter 28. Now the Lord spoke to Moses. Well, we already did that. Let's go to verse 3. Because you don't want to hear all that again. And the Lord, and you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day as a regular burnt offering. So the first offering he tells them that he wants to have offered to him, not for individuals, but for the nation as a whole, is a daily burnt offering. Now we remember a burnt offering was, is an offering of consecration. That it was called a burnt offering because the entire animal was put on the grate, so to speak, or on the altar, and it was completely consumed by the fire. So what it communicated by the offerer is, my life is completely yours, God. You can use it however you please. That, that's, and, and so this was a communication of the nation to God. This nation belongs to you. You use it however you, you see fit. And, and they, were, they were to communicate that uh, day by day. And then he says in verse 4, The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. So this uh, kind of vow of consecration occurred in the morning and in the evening. We're able to do it. It's a picture of Jesus. All the offerings are. It's a picture of Jesus' consecration to the Lord. He says, I do always those things that please the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's the offering of a burnt offering. 
And, and so we're able in prayer to begin the day and then to end the day by saying, God, my life belongs to you. You can spend it however you want. Use it for your glory today. And, uh, and there's that beautiful daily reminder uh, of the fact that we live for God's purposes. And so that was to be the tone that was set on a daily basis among uh, uh, the nation of Israel. One lamb you shall offer in the morning. Let's go to verse 5. And here's uh, the additional offerings. One-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a drink offering, uh, and its drink offering shall be one-fourth of a hin for each lamb. In a holy place you shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. The other lamb you shall offer in the evening as the morning grain offering and its drink offering. You shall offer it as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And on the Sabbath day, so you've got a daily sacrifice. Now this is a weekly sa- sacrifice. Every Saturday, every Sabbath day, here's what they were to do. Offerings. Two lambs in their first year without blemish and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. So on the Saturday or the Sabbath, they would offer the, the regular daily sacrifices and a burnt offering in the morning and the evening. Then they would also offer this sacrifice. So here was a way of saying every Saturday, Lord, we commit the next week to you. And, and we consecrate it to you and your purposes for us uh, as a nation. Jesus is, the Bible tells us in terms of a picture of him, he is our Sabbath. He is our Sabbath rest. God established the Sabbath with the children of Israel because God created the heavens and the earth, everything that's uh, in them. And seven days or six days, he rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath was to be a picture of uh, they were to rest also commemorating that. So that was a, a physical rest that, that they had one day out of the week. Jesus is better than the Old Testament law, the Bible teaches, and he provides us with a rest. Sabbath means rest. He provides us not with a physical rest, but with a spiritual rest every day of the week by providing us with a finished salvation. I never spend one moment in my life now trying to work for my salvation. Jesus said, it's finished, it's a gift, it's given to me. We get to rest. And then verse 11, at the beginnings of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. So we've got days, we've got weeks, we've got months. Hey, we look at this and, and, and say it might not mean anything to most of us in this room, unless there might be one or two of us in the room. And uh, you had a bad month last month. <laughs> It's kind of nice to know that on the month a person can look and say, that was, that was a crummy month. I, my life wasn't consecrated to you. I didn't get spent for your purposes and those kind of things. And, and so this month I want it to be different. And the whole nation could do that and an individual can do that. We can be as close to God as we want to be. So you see these ways that we, we block off time. We, we break time down to days, to weeks, 
to months. And so God is just saying, use every block of time that you have and and how you measure time and make sure all of it is just set aside uh, to me and set aside for his, his purposes. And so every, every block of time, we could go to hours and that kind of thing, but every way we break time down is another chance to say, okay, this next block of time as we measure it, we want your uh, life and purposes to be lived through us. And this was the, on, on the beginning of months, they were to offer two young bulls, one ram and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull. Two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for each lamb as a burnt offering of sweet aroma an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, some people, for some people, this is very tedious. Don't raise your hand if you feel that way. Have you, I love God's attention to detail. And one day we're going to get into heaven and we're going to realize every one of these little twists and turns of every one of these sacrifices speaks something of Christ. We're just not smart enough right now to understand all of it. I'm not, anyway. But sometimes in our Christian life, we can wonder, God, do you even know what's going on in my life? Are you even attentive to the little details of my life? You say to a person like that, have you ever read the book of Leviticus and Numbers? It'll cure you of that question. He knows everything that's happening, and he knows more than you might even want to know that he knows is happening. Verse 14, their drink offering shall be a uh, half a hen of wine for a bull, one-third of a hen for a ram, one-fourth of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. And also one kid of the goats as a sin offering to the Lord shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And then another division. In the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. So he says, I want you to, uh, uh, to celebrate the Passover. And that was a celebration of how God's judgment passed over the children of Israel in Egypt when the firstborn were killed as a part of the 10th plague because they applied the blood of the lamb, the prescribed lamb, to the doorposts and the lentils of, of the house. And, and so the, the Passover was to be, they were to celebrate the Passover. Jesus, the Bible says, is our Passover lamb. He has not only, he, he is the one that causes uh, God's judgment, not just related to one plague in Egypt to pass over our lives, but the blood of Jesus applied to our lives as Christian causes all judgment of God to miss us and to pass over us. I know some of you only sinned one or twice, once or twice in your whole life, so this doesn't mean anything to you. The rest of us in the room, this means a lot to us. He's passing over a lot. A, a lot has been uh, covered and washed away by the, the sacrifice of, of our Savior. And, and so they were to celebrate the Passover. 
And then verse 17 begins the second feast that was kind of attached to the feast of Passover, feast of unleavened bread. On the 15th day of this month is the feast Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. So it's a separate feast, but for seven days following the Passover, they would go through all of their houses, remove all of the leaven, which is a picture of sin. They'd remove all of the leaven out of their houses. And what it rep- represented is God has, pa- God has caused his judgment to pass over us, not so that we can now be forgiven and saved to live sin-filled lives, but in order to live holy lives and pure uh, lives. And so that's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, communicated, and it communicates to us. Jesus has saved us, not only to get us into heaven, but in, in order to give us the power and the ability to live a, a, a life that is without sin, to live a holy life and, and a pure life. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure that they're without blemish. Don't be bringing me junk. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull and two-tenths for a ram. You shall offer one-tenth of an ephah for each of the seven lambs. Also one goat is a sin offering to make atonement for you. And you shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is a for a regular burnt offering. So all these other offerings, Sabbath day, Daily offerings, beginning of the month, they were all to be given even on top of of what was required for this feast. And in this manner you shall offer the food of the offering made by fire daily for seven days as a sweet aroma to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. And on the seventh day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. Verse 26, also on the day of the first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering, and this is talking about a new offering now, a new grain offering to the Lord at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall have do no customary work. Now the feast of weeks is also known as the feast of Pentecost and and it's probably called the Feast of Weeks because it occurred several weeks after the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pentecost means 50, and the Feast of Pentecost uh, occurred 50 days after Passover. So, uh, and then we know from Acts chapter 2 what happened on the day of Pentecost. God, Jesus, uh, sent His Holy Spirit. He had ascended into heaven t- 10 days earlier. He sent His Holy Spirit as promised to now indwell uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, his people there in Jerusalem. And so this is, uh, this is the feast that it's, it's talking about. And so they would, um, that with this, this feast of weeks or the feast of Pentecost, they would take their offerings, their grain offerings and these kind of things, they would offer them to the Lord. It was an acknowledgement that God was giving them and blessing them as a nation with this food to supply them with the physical energy that was needed to live a life for God. Jesus takes and he uses the the Feast of Pentecost to come in and supply us with the spiritual power 
that we would need in our, our spiritual person that we would need to live a life of consecration to God. And so you've got the Old Testament picture. The New Testament picture is, is, uh, is stronger because the Old Testament uh, picture is a type uh, of the New Testament reality. And so uh, here you've got, I mean, if we sit here tonight, and if there's any of us here tonight that are thankful for our salvation, <laughs> thankful for the fact that, the, uh, that uh, judgment has passed over us because of Jesus, we're thankful that Jesus has provided us with the ability to live a holy life. We're thankful that He has supplied us with the power of His Holy Spirit. I mean, take those three things away from you, and what do you have? There's a lot to be thankful for in the Christian life related to those three things. Same thing in kind of a lesser way. They, they, this is what they were celebrating uh, with God. And so you shall offer, present a burnt offering, verse 27, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in their first year, with their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one kid of the goats to make atonement for you. Be sure they are without blemish, and you shall present them with their drink offerings besides the regular burnt offerings with its grain offering. I mean, he just knows that we say, well, you know, we're offering this to him today, so do we have to offer, you know, offer up the burnt offerings? Maybe we could save them and, and do like a lottery for them, you know, for the church fundraiser. He, he just... Don't do that kind of stuff to me, God says. Just offer all of it. Chapter 29. We'll only do 15 more chapters tonight, so just relax. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For uh, for you, it is a day of the blowing of trumpets. And so this particular uh, feast was known as the Feast of Trumpets or the Feast of Ingathering. So they would celebrate uh, that, bringing in the uh, late harvest. This was always celebrated uh, in fall, September, October in the year. So they're bringing in the late harvest before winter comes in. And uh, that, so they would be celebrating that, the bringing in of the harvest. And um, it, it speaks to us in terms of what it speaks of Christ is, uh, is we're waiting for a particular trumpet, the trump of God, the Bible says, that is going to uh, announce the rapture of the church, and then we're going to be in-gathered into heaven. That's a pretty good barn to be gathered into. And so he's just going to take us like sheep's a wheat, boom, right up there. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be endless uh, pizzas and Pepsi. <laughs> and you shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Their grain offering shall be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one kid of the goats as a sin offering to make atonement for you, besides the burnt offering with its grain offering uh, for the new moon, uh, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings according to their ordinance as a sweet aroma, as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now he moves to uh, uh, another um, Holy day, the day of atonement. On the tenth day, 
of this same seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation and you shall afflict your soul. So this isn't a celebration or kind of a party-like thing and party in a sanctified sense. You shall not do any work. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur is what it's known as uh, in Israel. It's considered by the Jews to be the holiest day of the year. We saw it earlier in the Law of Moses where they would take the two lambs, or the two goats rather. One goat would be sacrificed, and then the other goat would be let loose and driven out into the wilderness. And the reason two goats were a part of the sacrifice associated with the Day of Atonement is that it took two goats to represent the uh, the fullness of God, what God was doing with their sin. So you you have the 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 sacrifice of the first goat, which represented uh, how it is that God has forgiven us of our sins on the basis of sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice. And then as the other goat was driven out into the wilderness, it represented that our sin is now separated from us. And so the two goats communicated that forgiveness and the separation of the guilt and the consequences of our sin from us. I will never as a Christian, you as a Christian, will never, God's never going to, sometimes people, they scare you to death. Sometimes they'll say, boy, we get to heaven, God's going to run the videotape. Well, now they say DVDs or whatever. There's, this is your life, you know, and, and you're going to see, and all. no way. That's all under the blood. That's gone for us. And, uh, and so that sin has been separated away from us because of the greatness of our, our Savior. And, and so this, though, was the day of atonement. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the one ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one kid of the goats is a sin offering. Besides the sin offering for atonement, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings. On the 15th day of the seventh, uh, seventh month, so here we are in the same month, but there's a, another feast that uh, occurs uh, later in the month here on the 15th day. It's known as the Feast of Tabernacles also. He said, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. You shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. So the Feast of Tabernacles also occurred, celebration of God's faithfulness to them while they wandered for the 40 years in the wilderness. They never ran out of food. Their moccasins and sandals never uh, wore out. Little, uh, little Western uh, lingo for those of you who I'm losing. Uh, so those things never wore out in any kind of way. Listen, you do what you can. So they, they didn't wear out. It was a celebration of God's faithfulness. And we look at it and say, well, how, how does the Feast of Tabernacles um, uh, speak of Jesus? I think Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Tabernacles in his first coming. When he was born in Bethlehem. The Bible says that he came and he tabernacled among us. John chapter 1. We celebrate Christmas, uh, December 25th, basically to sanctify a pagan holiday. And, uh, and, and so, but 
Jesus probably was not born in December because they wouldn't have the flocks out there in that cold and the shepherds wouldn't have been out there in December. He was probably born in September, October, somewhere in there, probably fulfilled this feast in, in his, first, uh, his first coming. And you shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord, thirteen young bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, one-tenth for each of the fourteen lambs, also one kid of the goats, as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering and its grain offerings and its drink offering. On the second day, so this was a, a series of eight days, on the second day present twelve young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance. Also one kid of the goats as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offering. Now, stop the presses. One thing that is different about chapters 28 and 29 from when Moses gave them instruction earlier in the law concerning these, the worship of him on these days, he did not at that point in time give them this detailed of instruction on what offerings were to be offered to the Lord. So we can sometimes read it again and look and say, well, I wasn't offering the sacrifices, I wasn't a priest in those days, so it really doesn't matter to me. But you put yourself in the place of the priests or the leaders of the children of Israel and you would have hungrily read all of this instruction because you'd want very great deal. Now, how many lambs and how many bulls and how many grain offerings associated with the bull and all, they would have loved this instruction uh, as, even more than I do. Verse 20, on the third day, present eleven bulls, two rams, uh, fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance. Also one goat is a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and its drink offering. Notice the first three words of verse 23, on, or first four words, on the fourth day. Verse 26, on the fifth day. Verse 29, on the sixth day. Verse 32, on the seventh day. Verse 35, on the eighth day. And days three through seven, they're all exactly the same, except on each successive day, uh, days, the number of bulls was, that was sacrificed was reduced by one. So you've got to catch up with all of that in your mind, and we'll pick it up in verse 39. These you shall present to the Lord, at your appointed feast, besides your vowed offerings and your free will offerings, as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, and as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. And so this beautiful instruction that he gives here uh, concerning all of, all of these offerings. A very considerable number of offerings, offerings would have been uh, offered up to, uh, to the Lord. On just the day, uh, this Feast of Tabernacles, a total of um, uh, any accountants out there? Doesn't matter. I know we got one over here. On just the the day 
of a feast of tabernacles during those eight days. 105 lambs sacrificed, 15 rams, 71 bulls, eight goats sacrificed over those eight days. If you take all of the offerings, the sacrifices and, and all of the, the flower offerings and, and the, the oil and the wine and all that was offered to the Lord in, in all of these chapters 28 and, and 29, the, the, the yearly national offerings included 1,086 lambs, 113 bulls, 37 rams, uh, 30 uh, goats, over a ton of flour, 370 gallons uh, for, uh, uh, of wine and of oil. And so that's kind of the totality of, of what it was that was offered to the Lord uh, in these sacrifices. Now we look at all of this and we say to ourselves, aren't you glad that all we have to do is keep our eyes on Jesus? <laughs> who has the fulfillment of all of these things and has made a relationship with God not only much simpler, but much deeper. And so perhaps the worship team would come up and, and close our evening out with a time of worship spent just worshiping the Father and the Son this evening.